Welcome to the sanctuary. You're listening to DC Radio 96.3 HD4 and dcradio.gov, where we inspire, educate, and empower women of color to unapologetically transform into their most authentic and healthy selves by tapping into the goddess within. to the sanctuary you're listening to dc radio 96.3 hd4 and dcradio.gov where we inspire educate and empower women of color to unapologetically transform into their most authentic and healthy selves by tapping into the goddess within i'm wendy cherry your host and today's topic is near and dear to my heart and part of why i created the goddess awakening and healing sanctuary to identify, address, and offer solutions to support the state of black women's health. So I'm so grateful to have my sorority sister, Alpha Ada Maid, Virginia State University, Delta Sigma Theta Sorority Incorporated, Dr. Jasmine Abrams. Welcome. Thank you for having me. So she is an international behavioral research scientist who examines psychological and cultural factors related to health behaviors among marginalized populations with a focus on HIV prevention among women of African ancestry. So that's what we're talking about today, us. We're talking Mm -hmm. about the state of our health. And so right now she's a assistant professor of community psychology and behavioral medicine at the University of Maryland, Baltimore County. She's also a faculty fellow at the Center for Interdisciplinary Research on AIDS at Yale University School of Public Health. That's a lot, sorry. It is. (laughs) And she's also a domestic scholar with the HIV Prevention Trials Network. So welcome. Thank you. Welcome, Dr. Jazz. So now I first met Dr. Jazz at Virginia State University um, through Delta. And so, you know, then everybody gets on Facebook and then you kind of see people as they grow and evolve. And it was really, really cool to be able to see you go through. And then the next thing you know, you had your doctorate. (laughs) Now she's like, that didn't happen that easily. It didn't feel that way. (laughs) It didn't happen that easily. But, you know, you get to see these young women who we already know are brilliant and then you get to see them evolve. Mm -hmm. And then you get to see them kind of like take their rightful place in the in the job that they choose and then in the job in the career that they love. So mm-hmm. that's that's super cool and, and we love that. So um, she did a paper and the title of the paper is Reducing Disparities and Achieving Equity in African American Women's Health. And so I, I devoured that paper. I read it a long time ago when you gave it to me. Um, originally, and then I took some time before the show to to do it again. And so the main, some of the main things, because there were so many things that I pulled out of that paper is that black does crack. Mm-hmm. So we got it twisted. We have been sold a myth. We have been bamboozled. <laughs> we have been told that we as black women should and can endure everything Mm -hmm. and still survive and still be healthy and still be vital and um we gonna be okay Mm -hmm. and just suck it up Mm -hmm. mainly because we saw our elders do it so we we have a model for what it looks like now we always knew that they were sick like we always knew grandma had diabetes we always knew that maybe they weren't in the most, um, in the best of health, but because it's almost normalized that at least somebody's gonna have cancer, somebody's gonna have diabetes, somebody's gonna have some kind of health issue that is just is what it is. Mm-hmm. And so it's normalized. And so um, what we wanna say off the break is that's bull crap. <laughs> so we're gonna dispel those myths, right? right? Because it's not true. So 
Um, one of the other things, and then I want to ask you, like, how did you even get into this? But another thing um, that you talked about was the strong black women. Is it schema? Schema. Schema. Mm-hmm. The strong black woman schema. Okay. The cultural, relevant, strong black woman schema endorsed by us, many African-American women, is characterized by beliefs such as dedication to the care of others, Mm -hmm. resilience, ethnic pride, a perceived, and I like that the word was perceived, obligation to embrace multiple roles. That's calling like being the superwoman, super mama, Mm -hmm. super wife, everything. Determination to succeed and the perceived obligation, perceived again, Mm -hmm. to exude strengths and to suppress emotions. So this paper that I'm referencing, this is why I have my phone up, is Reducing Disparities and Achieving Equity in African-American Women's Health. So I see Tamika's on with us, and she's a psychologist. She went to Virginia State, and she's a sorrow. Hey, Tamika. And so you'll be able to download this paper. Um, because I'm going to put it where you all can get it. It was really eight pages of reading, but it broke down so many things that um, I kind of intuitively knew and can see, but I didn't know how to give it the words because I don't know the research and you pretty much kind of like gave us the research. So that's pretty deep. How did you go from a little Delta girl at Virginia State University to now being this doctor who is impacting black women's health globally. Yeah. Um, wow. So Virginia State was definitely instrumental in the journey. Mm-hmm. Um, I started out at Virginia State as an engineering major because my parents wanted me to pursue something that was going to make me a lot of money. Mm-hmm. And um, that's where most of my attention was. And it it was a field trip that we took as engineering majors to a factory to see a day in the life of an engineer. Okay. And it was that day that I said, I could never wake up every day and do this. Nah. My right. life would be awful. My, right. You know, my pockets would be fat, but my life would be awful. Right. Um, and so I, I started thinking, well, what do I want to do? And I remember the words of one of my mentors who said, pick something that you would do for free. Mm-hmm. And I thought, well, mm-hmm. what would I do for free? I'd help people. Mm-hmm. And so that's why I picked psychology. It's one of the helping professions. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And um, they tell you in psychology, if you ever want to do anything related to psychology, you have to go to grad school. Okay. And so in order to go to grad school, you needed to get research experience. Okay. So this is really where the journey all started. I did my first research experience in a lab that was looking at um, sexual health as it relates to religion and then I did another experience that was HIV prevention, and mm-hmm. I, I really just fell in love with the work of sexual health promotion and HIV prevention. So that influenced me to get my PhD so that I could actually okay. do my own research and develop my own programs. Um, and yeah, that that's the the path. It's short and sweet. It took right. about ten years. Right. <laughs> I'm like she did it quick. <laughs> so so you have actually a research program. You have been funded by NIH mm-hmm. to tell us about your funding from NIH and what the program is that you're working on. Yeah, so I've had funding from NIH on a few different occasions. Um, it's My funding started in graduate school to look at psychological predictors of cardiovascular disease risk. Okay. Um, I've also gotten funding from the Office of Women's Health to do HIV prevention work. Um, and currently I have uh, actually three projects funded by NIH. Okay. Um, One is looking at women's recommendations for sexual health programming. So we talked earlier before we got on air Mm -hmm. about how academics, we sit in the ivory tower Mm -hmm. and often develop these papers and knowledge and programs. Um, But there's a a really big and powerful movement going on right now in the academy where we're going back out to the community first to say, what do you guys think we should do? Right. Um, So that's one project looking at women's recommendations for sexual health programming. Another project is looking at how can we really emphasize pleasure in HIV prevention because Mm -hmm. that's the primary reason that people are having consensual sex Mm -hmm. um, Mm -hmm. is to either provide pleasure for themselves or their partners. So that's another project. And um, the last project that is currently funded by NIH is a project where we're looking at reducing 
stigma as a barrier to HIV prevention resources, Okay, um, both for people who are HIV positive and HIV negative in Haiti. Wow. In rural Haiti. Okay, so you, mm-hmm. you travel all over the world. Like every time I look on her Instagram, she's somewhere. <laughs> so, you know, that's cool. And, and, I'm, and I, we're grateful to have you out here doing the work. Thank you. It's a blessing. Yes. So let's go back to pleasure for a second. Okay. Because the, we're born seeking pleasure. We have a pleasure center mm-hmm. that's in our brain. Absolutely. Right? And so when we're first born and then if we had the opportunity to be nurtured when we were first born and have a loving mom who either bottle fed us or nursed us, the feeling of comfort was in was imprinted in the pleasure center of the brain. So then the body hunts for that same feeling, that same vibration of pleasure. Mm-hmm. So if you're saying that, and, and we know this, people do all types of things to seek pleasure, whether it's eating cheese, pizza, maybe just me, um, <laughs> no, or chocolate, or sex, or drugs, or whatever it is. We're always seeking pleasure, but it's because that's how we are have evolved. There is a pleasure center in our brains. And so people will do things sexually and otherwise to get that, but then that causes us issues, right? It can, so yeah. It can. So, talk, so in this paper, you know, it seems, not in this paper, in the world, in our everyday coming and going as women from African ancestry, we have been told that pleasure is bad mm-hmm. and that it's taboo and you going to hell mm-hmm. because <laughs> Jesus don't like you to have no pleasure, even though it says you're supposed to live abundantly mm-hmm. or whoever else is saying, you know, <laughs> that you're not supposed to have pleasure. But that's a God given. That's a birthright. And, and actually, that's why we're here to enjoy our lives. And pleasure could be you zip lining in Peru through the jungle. Absolutely. Or it can just be you sitting like I'm going to do this weekend with all my sisters in some cute pajamas that we're going to be matching and we're going to be laughing. <laughs> That's pleasure. So it doesn't have to be so like restrictive. Mm-hmm. And that's also why I feel like in my non-scientific opinion is why we are so suppressed and repressed and Mm. that causes our immunity system to be suppressed and then all of these different um you know uh lifestyle uh things happen to us um diabetes and ms and cancer and all these things because we have a weakened immune system Mm -hmm. and so and that when it's a, when it, when our immune system is weakened, disease is promoted. Absolutely, and it's we're basically opening up the red carpet for it to come into our bodies. So, going back to and this is I'm going back to her paper. I'm going to reference the paper the whole time. Like I said, you'll be able to find it afterwards. We'll upload it for you. But the black don't crack phenomenon that you are talking about here I'd like for you to expand ex- talk to us about it a little bit more but from what I'm looking from your paper it says that even though we cute <laughs> and we look good and even if we're however old we are and people say oh girl you don't look like you that age mm-hmm. biologically like our cells and all those things are eight years older than an average white woman Talk to us about that because we didn't know that. Yeah. So I think you really summarized it very well. We hear the term all the time. Oh, great. You look great. How old are you? Mm -hmm. Oh, there's a a really funny meme actually floating around on social media. It's a picture of a five-year-old black child, black girl. And uh, the title above the meme says something like, black women at 53. <laughs> <laughs> right. So just, you know, it's part of the culture right. for us to expect black women and black men also black people mm-hmm. to age gracefully. Right. Um 
And the reality is that when we get down to, like you were saying, the cellular level, Mm -hmm. that's not exactly what's happening. We're aging much more rapidly um, than our white counterparts. And we're also experiencing disease um, and death from disease at higher rates as well. So the term really, it's not entirely accurate. It only has Mm -hmm. space value. Um, Right. The black don't crack myth. Yeah. Right. So in your work, are there things that you're telling people or us to do or, or how are you getting that message out? Like, I mean, I didn't know it biologically. I know that the research shows that we're dying and many of my friends and people that I know and friends of friends are dying at very, you know, young ages or they're not being vital. They're just not vital. They're just not living their most healthy life. Mm -hmm. But how are we supposed to get this message out to our sisters that we have to do better? Yeah, I think as a, a scientist, most of my work is definitely done, as they say, in the ivory tower. Um, But I am a community-based scientist, research scientist, so um, whenever I'm doing work in the community or doing research, I always try to make it an even, to the extent possible, exchange. Um, So instead of just going out to communities and taking, I try to also give back simultaneously um, so that it's more of a reciprocal relationship. Um, But at a larger scale, I think using platforms like this, podcasts, radio shows, um, even you know, larger media outlets are great ways to get the message out because we're huge consumers of Mm -hmm. these types of things, huge consumers of media and television shows, movies, et cetera. And and every now and then I see movies and and some of these shows making efforts Mm -hmm. um, to get some of these messages out. So I do appreciate that. But I, I do also think that we as scientists need to do a better job with taking our work out into the hands of the masses so that it can be consumed easily Mm -hmm. um, by folks who aren't necessarily sitting at the table with us. So let me ask you this. And uh, when you're at the table, right? Mm -hmm. So we're talking Solange seat at the table. (laughs) Just so you know, if you're not sitting at the table, you're the meal. So now how often are we sitting at the table where you are? So you're doing this work. Is there a cohort of you who are really as passionate about this work as you are? Or are you the one of the few who's like running in in the China cabinet like a bull? Yeah, I think there's a small minority of scientists. Um, Again, this movement is growing and gaining popularity. And we're also seeing that evidenced by... Um, the willingness of federal funding agencies to invest in this movement. Okay. And the movement being involving um, community members in the research process early on and throughout the entire process. So the way research traditionally happens is scientists, we put on our thinking caps, Mm -hmm. and um, this is an oversimplification, or we notice an issue, put on our thinking caps, and then we think, okay, how can we solve this issue? What does the previous research say? Mm -hmm. What does this theory say? And we come up with some strategies for better understanding the issue and identifying some uh, solutions for solving the problem. The movement is, okay, let's bring in the folks that are experiencing the issue. Okay. Not just give them a seat at the table, but ask them what should be on the the menu. Where should we put the table? What time should dinner be served? Should it be served on paper plates or, you know, China or really involving them in the entire process and not just inviting them into the space, but making them active um, participants. participants and giving them the same amount of power that we have as researchers. Right. Um, and also providing them with the training and skills that they need to be able to um, make a meaningful contribution in those okay. spaces. So now when you've been able to do it, mm-hmm. how have our sisters in our community embraced it? And then how have you seen any um, statistics or real life um, proof that it's helping. Absolutely. So okay. for for the researchers who are employing this type of approach, and we call it community-based participatory research. Okay. Um, so for researchers who are utilizing this approach, we definitely see some positive impacts, especially in the health programming mm-hmm. um, arena. So for example, we see that 
programs are more sustainable. Mm -hmm. They are consumed at higher rates by community members at large. So, for example, we see more people in attendance at a, a health program or we see more people um, purchasing a particular product or accessing a particular product. Okay. We see more positive attitudes toward whatever the initiative is. Okay. Um, and we also see a greater level of buy-in and investment. Like, yeah, this is something that we're owning, that we're promoting to our friends, to our family members, something we want to share. And, okay. And you, you find that the community almost becomes uh, like an advocate for mm -hmm. the program or the initiative itself. Perfect. Yeah, so it's definitely a, a useful strategy, and I'm happy that more and more scientists are using it, and right. I hope it just continues to grow. Right. To grow. Me too, me too, because I, I mean, I guess we need all of it. We need the science. We need the people to bring it down out of the ivory tower to the streets, and then we need those people on the streets who have the credibility, because you not, we don't always trust people coming down out of those ivory towers to mm -hmm. tell us something about our health. So let's talk about the mistrust and, mm. you know, the mistrust that we have seen historically um, with people in, you know, using us as guinea pigs to further, uh, further health for probably other people. Mm -hmm. So talk to us about what that looks like. And I mean, we have the Henrietta Lacks, we have the Tuskegee Airmen, we have all types of stuff. Mm -hmm. You know better than me the actual one. So let's talk about that. And how do we move past that distrust, yeah. mistrust? Yeah, so there are tons of unfortunate events that have occurred, not just in our country, but mm -hmm. abroad as well, mm -hmm. where the U.S. government has purposefully um, infected individuals with different illnesses right. to uh, get a better understanding of how the illness impacts the body. Mm -hmm. um, we've also seen instances where the government has sponsored experiments um, or scientists themselves have sponsored their own research um, and used people, quote unquote, at the bottom of the barrel. So these are your marginalized population, black people, poor people, mm -hmm. um, people, homeless people, where no one's sort of checking for you or going to advocate for you. Right. Um, using these types of individuals in experiments where, oh, maybe we don't use any anesthesia, for example. Um, mm -hmm. So there's the father of gynecology. Oh, yeah. Um, and he did several experiments. I want to say it was about 40 like sort of experimental surgeries on black women without mm -hmm. anesthesia, mm -hmm. trying to figure out how to... Um, repaired the issue of fistulas mm -hmm. that women were experiencing. And so we've sort of named this man father of gynecology and yep. he still is to this day. And they day. pulled his uh they pulled his his uh, statue down out of New York mm. over the summertime. Oh great. And they Fantastic. had women standing out in front of his statue I don't know Central Park, I don't know where the statue was. But they had us standing out there in all white sheets with big red mm. blood marks in wow. front of their So I, that was this summer. Powerful. Yeah. Yeah, so instances like that that a lot of us may not be necessarily aware, aware of, of, right? But it's a sort of cultural memory that we have. Mm -hmm. There, it's it's a, I want to say it's relatively common in um, black families in particular not to want to go to the hospital when you get sick. You yep. oh, let me, I'm gonna just wait it out. Mm -hmm. I'm gonna see how I feel. I'm gonna you know do some ginger and mm -hmm. drink a lot of water, get some sleep, do a herbal tea. Yes. Um, Etc. Garlic, all these additional home remedies. Mm -hmm. um, and not to say there's anything wrong with home remedies, just making the point that for many of us, visiting a hospital or a clinic is the absolute last, last resort. The last resort. It's the last thing we want to do. Right. And it's, it's not something that just sort of happened. Yep. There are reasons, and part of it, um, part of these reasons are because of some of these horrid experiences that our ancestors have had related to the healthcare system. Yep. Um, so we are in some ways conditioned to think of the hospital as a last resort. And 
it's not surprising to me and I don't think it it's a wrong uh, a wrongful sort of behavior or assumption based on the experiences that right. we've had right. in the healthcare system and some right. of these experiences are not necessarily um only things that have happened in the past. There's some right. current things, some that, things are that are still, still happening. happening. Absolutely. And what I like to just interject the word, this one word, and then we can move forward is intention. Mm-hmm. These things are intentional. You know, you said uh, unfortunate in the beginning, but I want to be clear. Intentional. Um, so the thing is, you know, you can do the ginger, lemon, honey. I'm, a, I'm an integrative um, health coach, so I push that but there's sometimes you just got to go to the hospital sometimes you just need to get that level you know and then you can come and do those other things so it's just one of those things where you have to be able to gauge you know when to go and when not to go yeah I agree um but I also to that point I remember when I was writing the paper that you've been referencing throughout mm-hmm. our conversation mm-hmm. um and we wrote about access to care as a a barrier right. to black women um, in particular experiencing better health outcomes. Right. You know, there are all these barriers for black women in terms of them being able to get to the hospital or get to a doctor's appointment. We need to address these barriers so that black women have greater access to care. Mm-hmm. And so I was writing all of this and then we submitted the paper. One of the reviewers for the um, publication outlet sent a note back and said, can you please cite some evidence that shows that when black women have greater access to care, that their health actually improves? Ah, that was great. That was great. And it really made me stop and think like, wow, we as academics and uh, practitioners, we always say access to care, access to care. That's Mm -hmm. what we're preaching. Mm -hmm. And Wendy, I promise you, I scoured the research literature Mm -hmm. to to search for that evidence Mm -hmm. and could not find it. Wow. What I did find was that black women experience discrimination in the healthcare system that further contributes to negative healthcare outcomes. Right. So that was a little bit mind boggling for me. And it was from instances of uh, women coming in to report pain symptoms and not being believed by their physicians and not being prescribed the same type of, uh, Medications that a physician would prescribe to someone else reporting the same symptoms. Mm-hmm. When we talk about symptoms for heart attack, not being provided with life-saving treatments that other people would be provided with. Um, when we talk about giving birth, the same sorts of scenarios where we're seeing black women are overrepresented in these negative health outcomes. Mm-hmm. And for the ones that did actually go to the hospital, mm-hmm. they were not treated in the same way that other patients would have been treated. So we're seeing almost some of the healthcare systems um, become uh, systems that further these negative outcomes that we're seeing. Um, And it's unfortunate. So when we say access to care, I always say access to quality care. Access to quality care. Now, it's so interesting because um, NPR did this, this woman locally here, we're in the Washington, D.C. area. This woman passed away recently, maybe this year, 2018, maybe, Mm -hmm. maybe 2017. Um, she was, you know, complaining. She was pregnant, um, a single, going to be a single parent, had a mom who was helping her mm-hmm. through this, but um, she was having symptoms of um, something was wrong. And so she was trying to alert the system and nobody believed her and they kept sending her home. So she pretty much died. Her baby was born. Now her mother is taking care of this newborn baby. Mm-hmm. She, she's passed away, right? So, you know, she was... You know, she had her job. She had she wasn't like somebody who would be considered underserved, Mm -hmm. you know. So you go there, you have your college degree, you're a smart woman. Mm -hmm. You know, your husband might be sitting there next to you. You 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 have all these resources and these people just aren't listening to you. And it's so interesting. And I'd never thought about it until you just said it. I remember being pregnant and having the baby like she's about to come. I'm in labor. Right. And there were, I was just watching the monitors. Now, mind you, I had watched the baby story literally. And it was a show that comes on Lifetime and one of those stations mm-hmm. where it gives your story. It gives like the couple's story or the woman's story about how she's going to have this baby and what happens in the hospital. But only from that, I kept seeing this monitor with a certain number. 
And I kept thinking, nobody's coming to do anything about it. So when the nurse came in, I said, I think I need X, Y, Z or whatever, because this monitor is on a certain thing. And she said, oh, yeah, she was eating a cracker. Mm -mm. She wasn't really hardly paying attention. She just came in to do whatever, eating a cracker. And I'm like, yo, look at the monitor. And she said, ah, yes. And only because of the baby story was I able to get somebody to say something. So advocacy advocacy we have been socialized to give our power to the doctors yes and to the healthcare. <laughs> hey isa and we have been socialized that they know us better than we know ourselves and that little ache that little pain that little discomfort that we feel we push it away until we get them to co-sign mm-hmm. if we go. Mm-hmm. But if we do go, then they have to co-sign and then we'll say, oh, I was feeling that. And this is what it is, even if that's not what it is. Mm-hmm. Right. So advocacy yeah. on your own behalf. Right. Advocacy and questioning. So there's a, a saying in I know at least my real estate friends say they say always be closing. Okay. And I say always be questioning as a scientist, especially, but as a woman who's invested in and cares about her health, always be questioning. Mm-hmm. If you see something or are experiencing something, asking why mm-hmm. or why not mm-hmm. or how mm-hmm. and um, using resources that we have at our disposal to try and figure some of those things out as well. And also, to the extent possible, trying to be prepared. So culturally, yes, that is something that we absolutely do. We defer to the opinions of the experts Mm -hmm. and we don't ask them why. And some of the experts rely on us not asking them why Mm -hmm. or asking them any questions related to a treatment that they want to prescribe or a surgery that they want to perform. We usually just nod our heads and say, okay, because we think, well, this person obviously has my best right. interest at heart. Right. But in a country where healthcare exists in a capitalistic framework, mm-hmm. it's imperative for us to ask questions. Right. Um, and like you mentioned, having advocates with us as well. So I remember uh, one of my line sisters gave birth earlier this year. And we watched a documentary about birth before she went in. And I told her, look, I want to be there when mm-hmm. it happens. Okay. So send me a message. You know, you go into labor when you start to feel it. But also let me know what kind of experience do you want to have. Right. So that if folks try to start giving you X, Y, and Z and that's not what you want. Right. I can be there. I can make sure your mom knows or whoever knows so that we can ensure you're having the experience that you want. Um, and so, Because sometimes we're going to be in positions where um, maybe you faint or maybe you pass out or yep. <laughs> maybe you're unconscious for some reason or in too much pain and you can't advocate or question for yourself. So it's ideal if you can have others with you that know what you want, what kind of experience you mm-hmm, want to have, mm-hmm. if you do want medications or if you don't want medications, et cetera, yep. so that those folks can advocate for you. Right. I wrote a birthing plan. Mm. Yeah, and that was 16 years ago, but I wrote it and I made sure that everybody knew. And I don't e- I think I don't know who told me to do it. My doctors didn't tell me to do it. It was something I just saw and then mm. I wrote it out just in case. So that's interesting. So I um you know, going to the doctor, I went to the same doctor here in this in the DMV for 12 years. And then I had I got uh, introduced to another doctor, sort of like a naturopath, mm. uh, you know, a holistic doctor. And she asked me in my first meeting more questions than this lady asked me in 12 years. Mm-hmm. And it was evident. I'm sitting at the table. She even asked me if I loved myself. Wow. That was like her first, that was her opening. Wow. Do you love yourself, Miss Cherry? And I was like, hmm. I don't know because mm-hmm. nobody ever asked mm-hmm. me that. Do I drink water? Do I use the microwave? Mm-hmm. Like little things. So it's one of those things where, you know, it can be tricky because we believe what they say. And I went to her because I'd already done the surgeries. I had three surgeries and nothing was changing because they kept saying, but try this one. Uh-huh. No, this one's going to work. No, this one is the silver bullet. Mm-hmm. You're going to be good after this. Mm-hmm. And I remember when I realized after the third one, I was not good. 
And I was like, you've got to be kidding me. And I have, you know, had insurance. I had, I'm smart. I, you know, I was wanting to be better and willing to do what I needed to do to be better. And I still was experiencing these things. So let's talk about what we can do. What can we do? Like to go, <laughs> when we go into the doctor's office or like what what are we doing to make ourselves be seen mm. and be heard? Mm. Like what is it that, we can do through the research that you've seen around the world with women of African descent who are not always seen, who are not always heard, but still, we still deserve to be vital. Yeah. I think one thing um, that sort of grabbed me when you were talking about your experience with the naturopath is that all of these things, and this is certainly something I want to communicate in terms of health, are related. Yeah, mind, so body, spirit. So our psychological, yes, mind, mm-hmm. body, spirit, mind, body, exactly. Spirit. Our psychological health bears on our physical health. Our physical health bears on our psychological health, our spiritual health, et cetera. All of these things are interrelated. Mm-hmm. And the way that our systems exist, um, they exist in silos. Mm-hmm. So we have a healthcare system that addresses physical health problems. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Then we have a mental health care system that addresses mental health problems. Right. Then we have a church or a synagogue or a mosque where people go to address their spiritual health. Right. We need more places like you were mentioning, integrative health, where right. all of these things are integrated. I remember several years ago, I was experiencing a chronic condition every month going to the doctor. And I'm thinking there's some underlying issue. Right. Can you please stop giving me medicine and help me understand what's happening? Right. Um, and one doctor just told me, and this is after it had been going on for maybe a good year and a half or two, mm. some women just experienced this and it's just something that you might like have to get used to. Right. So I was back again the next month. I went to a different provider and I think she was more like sort of low key, integrative, uh-huh. holistic. Because you have, they have to like, you know, they have to walk the line. Yeah, so they don't get the license snatched. Right, exactly. Okay. And she was the first person in two years that asked me, "What's your diet like?" Right. Right. What What is your sleeping schedule? Right. And we were able to put two and two together with regard to all of these things that were sort of converging on my health. A change of diet yeah. and a probiotic. Yep, for the gut. Boom. Yep. Vanish. <laughs> so it's interesting because, you know, I my 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 certification and my training is in nutrition. Mm-hmm. But I like to talk about everything that nourishes, right? Mm-hmm. So food. Mm-hmm. Food can be the medicine in many instances. And it's just a quick little change of the diet. So I experienced the same thing. I had all these ish um, symptoms of numbness on my right side. Mm. My toes, my fingers, my eye used to be a little wonky. And it just, you know, it just happened all the time. And so at some point I normalized it. And then when I was just like, mm, no, it's a little bit too uncomfortable. I went to a neurologist. Mm-hmm. Then I went to an infectious disease doctor. I was going everywhere. I go to my doctor that I have now. She said, stop eating all that oatmeal in the morning. It was the grains. It wow. was the gluten. She tested me celiac. Wow. I don't have any of those things anymore. I'm talking, they thought I had MS. Mm. They thought I had Bell's palsy. Wow. They thought I had all these Lyme disease. I didn't. I was eating you know, pancakes, all all the things that I love. I love all those things, Mm -hmm. but gluten. Mm -hmm. So, and flour and sugar and all that stuff. So, you know, sometimes it really is just a change of the diet. Mm -hmm. And we, um, you know, we in general, I don't want to generalize. Many times we just don't focus on that. Right. And so when I was reading your research, I was looking at, we are the most obese like break down some of the health issues that you see that you can pull out that we experience over other populations. 
Yeah, so black women in particular, we experience obesity at higher rates. So 82% of black women are obese compared to 63% of white women. Um, And I don't like that we use white women as the comparison point, but this is sort of standard practice, if you will. Mm -hmm. And as a country, we're mostly overweight, like most of the individuals living in the United States are Standard American diet. Right. Right. Standard American diet. Right. Um, In addition, black women experience diabetes at higher rates. So Mm -hmm. at twice the rate of white women, we Mm -hmm. experience diabetes. Cardiovascular disease, black women, uh, about 49% of black women experience some form of cardiovascular disease compared to 32% of white women. Um, HIV, which is my particular area of uh, interest and focus, black women experience um, HIV. So this is among women that are diagnosed with HIV, 61% are black compared to 19% of women um, that are white. Okay. And in D.C. in particular, mm. okay, so we want to hone in on HIV for just a second. I, um, black women are 92% of the women living with HIV in our nation's capital. 92%. And in our nation's capital also, we have the highest rates of HIV out of any other location in the country. Rates that are similar to some parts of sub-Saharan Africa. Why? My response to that is because D.C. is very black. Oh, okay. And so we just attract an AIDS because we black? It's not necessarily because we're black. Um, When we think about some of the risk factors for HIV, so there are a lot of social and psychological factors that start to come into play. Let's talk about those. Let's talk about them. So HIV actually disproportionately impacts men. Okay. Men are uh, the majority of individuals who are diagnosed with HIV. Um, and this is across racial or ethnic groups. Mm. And the number one mode of transmission for HIV for men is homosexual activities. Okay. So particularly anal sex. Okay. Um, and for black women, for example, the number one mode of transmission is heterosexual sex. Okay. So sex with a man. Yeah. Um, one of the issues that we have is homophobia. Right. So black men who are having sex with men are not comfortable in talking about the fact that they're having sex with men. Right. Black women, and I don't want to say all black women, but culturally, black culture, we shame people yeah. who are... Um, Gay, or even not people, not just people who are gay, because they're a subset of men who have sex with other men that don't identify as gay or bisexual. Um, And we shame that type of activity, um, not just in the black community, but sort of culturally in the United States. Um, So that's one huge issue. And in the Caribbean. And in the Caribbean. Yes, (laughs) absolutely. All over the world, really. Yeah. Um, so that's one issue is that individuals who are engaging in riskier types of behaviors are not um, comfortable with discussing their risk factors with their partners mm-hmm. and even with providers. Mm-hmm. Um, testing is also a huge issue. Um, and a lot of people don't want to get tested because of fear. Yeah. Because of yeah. fear and stigma related to HIV. So there's a stigma related to being gay or engaging in a homosexual sex there's also a stigma related to having hiv yeah and if i'm a man that's having a sex with other men i definitely don't want to be stigmatized for that and i certainly don't want to be stigmatized for having hiv right so some folks would just rather not know and they don't get tested right um and when you're not getting tested i think a statistic that i saw recently was that Individuals who are unaware of their status contribute to about 20% of the transmission of the virus. Yeah, Mm -hmm. new infections. So that's a huge problem. That's not knowing and needing to be tested. The other issue, particularly for black women, black women are the group of women that are least likely to have sex with men outside of their racial or ethnic group. Right. So if black men bear 
most of the HIV in comparison to men of other racial ethnic backgrounds and Mm -hmm. black women are only or primarily having sex with men who carry the the burden of the disease, Mm -hmm. then we're increasing our risk just by virtue of um, who we're having sex with. Gotcha. And uh, yeah, the the geographic locations in which we're having sex as well. So most of us have sex where we live. Yeah. And most of the cities that have high HIV uh, rates are predominantly black or majority black or have a lot of black people cities. Right. Now, I I think that also we kind of have forgotten about AIDS was like hot and pot, and we have 15 minutes left. Goodness gracious, 15 minutes, right? <laughs> you were right in the time. Yeah, she's gonna have to come back. <laughs> but um, I feel like it's kind of falling off the radar. Mm-hmm. And they have the ads on the bus that say, you can just take this medicine and you'll be good. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. so I think that the guard has been down. Some people have brought their guard down in relation to who they're gonna have relations with mm-hmm, because they mm-hmm. feel like. Maybe they don't hear about it, so it doesn't exist. Head still in the sand. Um, and then we got this pill that's on the side of the bus, so I'll probably be good anyway. Mm. So that's just something that strikes me because I don't really hear anybody talking about HIV. Yeah. Um, I think the goal, one of the goals of some of these campaigns that are going on um Related to getting more information out, obviously we want to drive down the rates of infection. Um, so Baltimore, actually, which is where I work and live, mm-hmm. they have a really great campaign going on called the U equals U campaign, okay. and it's undetectable equals untransmittable. Okay. So for individuals living with HIV, if they take care of themselves, and usually that involves taking um, a certain cocktail of medications Mm -hmm. and doing other things to make sure that their viral load is so low that if they are tested, the virus is undetectable. Okay. Um, If you're undetectable, you cannot transmit the virus to another person. Oh, So, yeah, the likelihood is like, very, 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 very small. Okay. Um, okay. Yeah, so much to the point that the health departments are owning undetectable equals untransmittable. Okay. Um, so these efforts combined with the the pill on the side of the bus, letting people know mm-hmm. if you take PrEP, for example, mm-hmm. it's a once daily pill that can prevent HIV. Um, I think one of the main goals behind these efforts are we don't want people that are living with HIV to be afraid to get the resources that they need right. to talk to their partners. So if I'm a person living with HIV, I'm not afraid to tell people, hey, there's this once daily pill you can take if you're interested in being in a sexual relationship with me right. that will prevent you from getting what I have. Right. I do think one of the unintended consequences has been uh, what you mentioned Um, people sort of lowering their guard because the medications exist um, essentially today to really end the HIV epidemic. But we're going to still see rates like high rates of HIV if folks are not engaging in the the care that's needed to eliminate the the virus as we know it. We have all the resources that we need to do it. So let's talk about um, in the last few minutes mm-hmm. um, I want to hone in on black women and us with that perceived um, obligation mm-hmm. to be able to be superwoman and wonder woman and handle everything yeah and we said that that affects our immune system and um, but let's talk about racism mm-hmm. and the stress and being in corporate America and just being in the world and being worried about sending your sons and your husbands out mm-hmm. and then even yourself because we, we know what happened to Sandra Bland like let's talk about that how that affects our health absolutely so there's a, a field um, in the research world called stress physiology. And it's all about understanding how stress impacts our bodies. Um, Research on stress has been going on for decades and it's not new. I don't think in the research world, certainly not new, but even um, in the community, it's not new that stress negatively impacts our health. Oh yeah. Um, College students see it all the time around finals. You start seeing people dropping left and right with colds and stomach virus and fevers. 
etc. And all of that is related to the amount of stress that they're experiencing. Um, and what's so interesting about stress is there's a really great TED talk that I watched several years ago and I always show it in uh, my health psychology course. There's a woman who talks about the research on stress and she said someone did sort of a revolutionary study okay. where they found that stress only impacted people's health negatively if they believed it would. Mm-hmm. So us simply telling people that stress is bad for your health, stress is bad for your health, contributes to our sort of internalization of if I'm experiencing stress, it is going to be bad for my body and bad for my health. Okay. Okay. So this woman said, and they did a sort of... To that yeah, you, you would love it. Um, she said another set of scholars did a study where they essentially told people, you know, we're going to like expose you to some stress. Mm-hmm. We want you to see the stress that your body starts experiencing as good for you. Right. We want you to imagine that when your heart rate is going up, it's preparing you to meet this challenge. Right. When you feel um, your blood pressure rising or your palms sweating or whatever happens to you when you're experiencing stress, see it as something that's helping your body and not harming it. And they okay. saw that these people experienced um, fewer negative health outcomes associated with their experience of stress. Okay. So essentially, the the framing on it is stress is only bad for you if it, if you perceive that it'll be bad. So for like you. a placebo, nocebo. Like it's like you think you're taking a pill. It's a sugar pill, but you still feel better. Mm-hmm. Okay. So that's interesting because our bodies, you know, the the cortisol comes for a reason. Like, it's just when we get out of balance. Mm -hmm. So the cortisol comes to help you go into fight or flight. It's the hormone that that puts you into fight or flight. Your system shut down so that you can run if you need to. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Or it helps you to deal with whatever is coming your way. Right. So if you're saying that if you can manage that better and don't see it as just negative, then it'll help with your health outcome. That's so interesting. Yeah, I that's what the that. research says. Now, one thing that I think is also important is I don't know who the research participants were. Okay. So okay. I don't know if they were studying yeah. black folk or not. Right, because we have ancestral stress. Right, exactly. We have ancestral exactly. stress. And what is so interesting to me, um, I was at an event this weekend and somebody said this to me that totally shifted my thought on, on some of this ancestral stress, right? Mm-hmm. We come from power. So why, so when I'm talking about ancestral stress, I don't have to tap into the foolishness that they, why can't I go back to the kings and the queens and then even the people who weren't kings and queens, but they were prosperous and they were in the sun and they were enjoying life Mm. and just having fun and teaching their children and eating good food and dancing Mm -hmm. and loving their elders. Mm -hmm. Why can't I tap into that? go past the seven generations of whatever might have been craziness and whatever they experienced and tap into the even more ancestral. Mm-hmm. So that was a shift for my brain mm-hmm. because I, I was, you know, we're taught, you know, kidnapping and enslavement and, and that's what our ancestors came from. But there was a, that's just like page 99 on a hundred page book. Mm-hmm. We had all those other pages and other awesome things happening that we come from, that's us, and we're still here. Right. So I'm going to start thinking that way. Yeah. And I'm going to start telling my, my patients and my clients to tap further back. Yeah. And to to use the body's normal mechanism to help you do whatever you need to do and try to learn how to use it um for, for positivity. Right, use you it know, positively. Because when it gets out of balance is when it's the issue. Right. And I, I think... When it gets out of balance, we see issues, but when our systems are having to frequently every do day. the work. That's every day. Multiple times right. a day. Every day. Every day. And um, I remember just a few weeks ago, like working at a predominantly white institution has mm-hmm. been particularly challenging for me this semester. Um, so I had several things that happened and I was just feeling incredibly exhausted Mm -hmm. I didn't want to come to work I wanted to you know quote unquote call in while black uh, or call out while black (laughs) like it was a very real phenomenon for me and I remember one of my colleagues asking well what do you want to do and I said I just want to stay home where I can forget that I'm black (laughs) 
I said, but when I go outside or if I turn on the news or listen to the radio, I am automatically aware of my blackness and the fact that it's devalued um, in this space that I'm living in. So we see for lots of folks that um, we are constantly coping with stress. Yeah. And our body was designed to handle that. But but at the... It was designed to release it after you have an incident. Right. It wasn't designed to constantly be coping with stress. Right. Right. So if you think about our bodies as cars, which is not uh, the best analogy, it's certainly an oversimplification, but your car is meant to drive. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It's meant to weather certain, you know, difficult road conditions. Yep. But it's not meant to do that every day we just got snow in in virginia right Mm -hmm. our cars are not meant to drive in inches of snow every day right are we going to see certain consequences if we do that right 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 but it can handle it sometimes perfectly fine with no issue right um and so that that's one of the issues with stress is that we're constantly experiencing as black people um in this particular country stress and our bodies are constantly being forced to cope i remember a few years ago, I did a presentation and a, a woman was there from Africa mm-hmm. and she said, I found this presentation very interesting. It was about being a strong black woman. Mm-hmm. And she said, um, what was most interesting to me when I immigrated to this country was that I didn't know I was black until I came here. Right. <laughs> she was like, I was just a person right. before. But when I came here, I was a black person. And that was made very clear to me. Right. Right. Terrible. Isn't that terrible? It's terrible. Like you just being you. You just being you. What I do appreciate about blackness today, especially, and it's sort of reminding me of the like um, 70s Black is Beautiful movement, Mm -hmm. is that we are coming into an ownership of the beauty of blackness. And I love it. Yes, I I love it. And I think it's an important source of like collective resilience for us to be able to own the beautiful things about being black. I agree. Yeah. So let's talk about, because Dr. Jasmine is going to have to come back. <laughs> She's going to have to come back because we just didn't even hit some of the things that we were going to talk about. But I want to go back to the pleasure principle. Okay. Okay. So let's talk about pleasure and the other work that you're doing in the three minutes that we have, because she's going to come back and talk about this. But let's talk about pleasure and um, the other work that you do. Yeah. So... As I've sort of talked about and alluded to, I've been doing HIV prevention and sexual health research and programming for about 10 years. Okay. Um, And a few years ago, I just started getting very frustrated with the fact that, especially when we're talking about black women's sex, it's all negative. It's HIV, it's STDs, it's unplanned pregnancy, it's childhood sexual trauma. My goodness, aren't there some black women who are having great sex and enjoying it and talking about it? The research literature does not reflect that. (laughs) So um, that's one thing I've started to do is just sit down and have conversations with black women about good sex. Like, what is good sex for you? Mm -hmm. How do you achieve it? How do you make sure you experience it? What are some of the challenges you experience in trying to achieve it? Mm -hmm. Um, And what I'm currently doing is using that information um, in my professional work uh, in the academy to create HIV prevention programming that's actually pleasure focused. Okay. So we realize pleasure is the main reason you're having consensual sex. Right. Let's nail down and drill down on that to create more comprehensive programming that folks are actually interested in. Right. Um, and then on my entrepreneurial side, okay. I'm also capitalizing on that because women do want to have pleasurable sex and some people are not necessarily aware of what they need to do to have pleasurable sex. Right. So the focus of uh, the Spice Experience, my company I recently started, is really um, just trying to give women the education, the resources, the skills that they need to be able to provide pleasure for themselves Mm -hmm. and pleasure for their partners. Because women, we want to provide pleasure to ourselves, but most women, their number one priority is partner pleasure. Okay. So making sure women have the skills and resources that they need to have really great sexual experiences is the goal of the Spice Experience. Okay, so let's talk about how people can find out about the Spice Experience. Right, so you can head to our website. It's www. 
spiceexperience.com mm-hmm. and experience is spelled with an X. Okay. So it starts with an X. Yeah. Leave off that F- E mm-hmm. <laughs> in the beginning. Um, you can also head to our Instagram account, which is the Spice Experience. So we're easily uh, searchable online. You and do workshops? Um, is that we like do. okay? So you do workshops, so, so people can find what's happening with workshops and Absolutely. stuff in the DC area, Baltimore area, or just. Yeah, we're primarily in Baltimore right now, but okay. we're working on them actually right after I leave here, headed to um, someone's sex toy shop in okay. the D.C. area that's interested in partnering with us so that we can bring some programming down to D.C. Okay. We're working on some pre-Valentine's Day activities. Okie dokie. Yes. Okay, so Dr. Jasmine will be back. Thank you so much, Sorori. It was so awesome Thank to talk you. to you. We're going we're gonna to continue the conversation. Black does crack. Get, don't get it twisted. Don't please, get it twisted. Please don't stress yourself out. Just balance yourself out and try to do whatever you can to stay healthy. Now listen, again, in the sanctuary, you can follow my revolution at Awaken and Heal on Instagram and goddess-awaken.com on the web. And I look forward to seeing you next time. Thanks Thank so you. much for having me. Thank you. Thank you for listening to The Sanctuary. Please follow us at Awaken and Heal on Instagram and on the web at goddess-awaken.com to follow the revolution.